it's very lovely to just tune into the energy, the atmosphere in in the hall. Sometimes um, we can get so focused on our our process and what's happening in telling on retreat that we kind of lose touch with that. And so just an invitation to just to open the awareness a little bit from time to time and just feel the the energy of this coming together of intention. Each person doing their own thing. And yet that shared intention, that shared dedication and and something that is actually quite uh, palpable when we tune into it. We can actually feel it. Sometimes. Don't give yourself a hard time if you can't. But just kind of dipping in every once in a while and, and feeling what that is. So I'd like to um, like to begin the the kind of um, reflections with you uh, this evening with something that Nathan brought up uh, quite close to the end of his talk yesterday when he was speaking about the um, He was speaking about uh, giving this example of getting into a pose, power pose, I think he was speaking about, getting into a power pose and how that can actually change impact experience, both uh, in the particular, in, in one instant particularly, and then also over time. And I find, I wanted to go back to that because I find that really important and very interesting. You know, and maybe we might think, oh, that's just a bit of, I don't know, kind of feel-good strategy or cheap psychology or, you know, whatever, which is fine. But if we reflect on that and just that, what, what, it, what it says to us, you know, how putting the body in a certain posture that it's not accustomed to, doesn't often take, that that actually has an impact on the mind. And that then the mind state that results from that impacts perception. Yeah, impacts perception of myself, impacts perception of a situation, impacts in that situation how others will then perceive me as well. Obviously not still in the power pose. <laughs> you walked into a job interview or gave a talk kind of like with one of those. Did you do them last night? <laughs> he was he was um 
he was showing them to me before the talk. They're quite funny. <laughs> I don't know if I can even... Like, I'm blushing just thinking of doing one in here. <laughs> yeah, but kind of like, you know, like a power pose. I've got power. Something like that, you know, just doing that. It reminded me of a couple of things, this story. Um, one just popped up, in, pop, popped up into my mind right now, uh, which is of uh, uh, a Native American man uh, that I, I saw as part of a, of a film, of a documentary film quite a few years ago. And uh, he, was, he was speaking about a practice he had. And his practice was to stand in front of the mirror every morning and look at his image and kind of stand in his own body, stand in his own feet. I can't remember exactly what, he was, he, what it was he would say to himself, but it was something like, I love you, man. You know? Or you're good. And he was, he was, he was speaking about that, saying, you know, my wife thinks I'm crazy, <laughs> but it really works, you know? In the, in the sense of like changing the, impacting the mind, impacting the inner experience, which then impacts the perception of meeting life, whatever life is, is bringing up internally or externally. Yeah. And then that, in turn, then affects also, you know, perception of others. It, it affects interactions. Kind of like gets in there and changes some of the habitual cycles that we all have in our minds. And this reminded me um, of another example, which is actually from the Buddha. And so if you've seen Buddha Buddha statues, they often, um, Buddha's often in, in, in specific postures. Yeah. There's, there's quite, I think there's about six very common ones, and then there's others. And each of these postures has a, has a meaning, has a, a symbolism. So at one point in my practice, um, I was on a long retreat, and I was coming up a lot, coming up a lot around this thing of like feeling not good enough. You know, my practice isn't good enough, I'm not good enough. It was coming up a lot. And I went to see um, one of my teachers. And and he said to me, "Do you know this? Do you know this um, posture of the Buddha when he kind of he's he's doing this? Yeah, you see it a lot, either standing or sitting. He's doing this. And uh, and I said, "Yeah, I know that." And he said, "Try it. Do it. It's really interesting. If you want, you can try it too." I was sitting in an armchair, so the guy, in the guy house library, so I was sitting in an armchair, kind of slumped and probably, you know, one leg over the other. And as I did the posture and really paying attention, you know, getting aligned, what happens to the body? You can't do this like that. You can't do it. You've got to got to kind of come into the body, come into yourself. Get that alignment of the spine and the openness of the body. And the hand, you know, the hand is soft. Yeah? So this posture is actually got, it's called the posture of protection or have no fear. 
Yeah? But it's not this. It's not pushing away. It's just... Stop. You know? Hold on. And the protection is also in that embodiment within oneself. That itself. We're not needing to hold, to push anything away, to keep anything away. Just feeling that. And I've, I've used it since. I've suggested it to you, to um, people many times um, in interviews. And I particularly want to share one. You know, someone left me a note afterwards and said, I found myself standing on the earth, both feet planted on the earth, standing, and both hands like this. And a sense of vastness, sense of vastness inside and outside. And the interesting thing is that when this, why is this interesting? Because again, we're not pushing something away. Yeah? So the voices, as Nathan was saying yesterday, the voice, that voice that, for example, you know, in my example, is saying you're not good enough, doesn't necessarily stop. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily, you know, get banished. But that standing in, on the earth, in, in our own skin, in my own skin, with that gesture of protection, changes the relationship. Changes the relationship. So that friend of mine who left me the note, you know, she was saying, you know, I could just, I was there, I was standing, and the voices were that part of, you know, they were part of the landscape, they were part of the space. But what, what becomes visible is that they're only a part of, they're only one voice in the symphony of life. One voice, and then they can take their space also without having that impact, without having that impact. So why did I go back to this? Why is this important in particular? You know, I think it already, I can already feel why it's important. Hopefully kind of already got a taste, but there's something in particular I want to pull out of it. And that's that sense of how impacted everything is. You know, we, we, we tend to separate things and disconnect them in the way we approach life, the way we approach ourselves, the way we approach life. You know, so we think, oh, you know, body is not connected to the mind, the mind is not connected to the heart. Perception is, you know, perceiving things, objects, phenomena. And we forget the connection. We forget the connection. We forget that actually nothing is that word objective, <laughs> you know, standing on its, in itself alone, separate, not in relationship. Everything is impacted. Everything is impacted, including this, <laughs> including this body, heart, mind. You know, which we're habitually, and, and this isn't, we're not bad for doing this, but habitually we forget. 
we forget. And so this kind of seeing this is actually seeing this um, this um, phenomena of fabrication that we touched on a couple of times yesterday, actually seeing it in action. The body posture affects the mind. That affects what we perceive. It affects experience. Yeah, I mean, the same voice, the same sight, the same emotion, and yet perceived differently. And it's also a reminder. So one thing is it really breaks that open. You know, that way, the fabrication, the way our minds play a part. You know, the mind plays a part in perception. It's not neutral. And hopefully I'll, I'll make that clearer through the talk today. So that's one thing. It really kind of breaks that open. And this kind of example also reminds us that we have habitual ways of looking at the world and at ourselves. You know, we have, these are habits. They exist. You know, we really forget. We really, really forget this. Sometimes we, we didn't even realize. You know, perceive things, and we do with perceiving via our habitual ways of looking at the world. We have habits. And they're like, you know, they're like glasses. They, they're like a filter. They affect what we see. And these habitual ways of looking, this is where it gets really interested, they're not ultimate, yeah? And they're not fixed. They're habitual, so the kind of what we, the groove that we fall into, what we usually do. But they're habits. They're not permanent. They're not fixed. They're conditioned. Yeah? Just like everything else. They're conditioned and they're dependent. Not self-sufficient. Which means they're workable. They're changeable. They're pliable. At least to a degree, yeah? Some of them are very, very um, solidified over time. Still not permanent, not solid, you know? And we're not saying, you know, when I say this, it doesn't mean that we should be able to just kind of click our fingers and make them go away. But they are workable and they are changeable. With, with practice and with time. And sometimes it can be very immediate. Yeah, sometimes it can be very immediate. And I think we all know that experience when it's as if something suddenly drops and we see something, we see something in a fresh way, in a different way that we haven't seen before. So... You know, we've been practicing for a couple of days now. So this is, you know, we've seen some of these habits. We've seen some of these habitual ways of looking already. And it's a good time to, to really um, turn the gaze a little bit to, to that as well. Turn the gaze a little bit to that. The ways that we really associate this lasting, permanent, solid qualities and nature to things. You know, anything from, you know, as, we, as we, we're turning in, so we see anything um, from the weather 
to the next meal, you know. We, we give it some kind of, you know, yesterday, you know, it was raining. <laughs> you know, it was a wet day. And how that kind of becomes a, a thing in the mind. You know, and so that we, we stop even noticing the softness of the rain. <laughs> Just because it's persistent. It's actually really soft, really gentle rain yesterday. And we kind of lose contact with that because it just becomes wet. Or, you know, what I don't want. You know, what's really bringing me down. What's stopping me from doing my walking practice. Which if I was able to do, you know, I'd advance much further. You know, so all the, you know, I'm I'm joking because humor is really helpful (laughs) in seeing this. Really, really helpful. You know, we... That solidifies. It's it's that. Or, you know, we might be finding ourselves uh, looking forward to the next meal. You know, that's, you know, that's pleasant. That's going to bring me happiness. You know, really. And then if, if, we, if we watch, what happens? <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, even the first bite we're not tasting, let alone the third or fifth, you know. And what happened if we kept eating? <laughs> that pleasure would, would change into, you know, displeasure, suffering. So it's just, it's not the thing. Not the thing. So one thing that we can see here more and more clearly is the way we habitually fix and fixate. Give permanence, give solidity to things. And another thing that we can see is actually how changeable things are. Yeah, how changeable they are and how impacted they are. How non-separate, you know. What's the, how, how do we feel when the sun shines on our face? Yeah. Or we can see the view. We're impacted. We're impacted. It has an effect. And then how does, whatever it is, how does walking meditation then feel as a result? All impacted. So we can see all that externally and internally, and also in the inner life, also in the inner life. So Nathan was saying yesterday, you know, we have this habit to believe what arises internally, the moods, the thoughts, you know, this is like this, I am like that. Again, to fix, to solidify. And then because we believe it, we react. Yeah, we push away or we try and hold on to. And the result of that, you know, this is another thing to really look at. What does that lead to? Most of the time, some degree of unhappiness. Yeah, but it's a very natural, it's very human. And yet, it leads to some degree of unhappiness. So, just an example of this, in case you can't remember any examples for, from, your, from your day. So say we're sitting here in meditation, 
and being with the breath or the body. And things are relatively quiet and calm and present. If you're sitting there thinking that hasn't happened to you, (laughs) I can promise you there's been some moments at least. Sometimes we just miss them, but you can do it with the unpleasant as well. So, being with the breath, relatively quiet, relatively calm, a sense of something pleasant and comfortable maybe, or relaxed. And the thought might arise, oh, you know, depends on your personality. <laughs> you know, it might be, I get this, I'm getting it. You know, it's, it's happening. <laughs> it depends on your personality. It might be, oh, this is nice. Or, you know, whatever your personality is, what the flavor is. And then if we pay attention with that, you know, that kind of popping in the mind, usually what follows is some kind of contraction around the experience, yeah? It becomes about me, yeah? Either it's my experience or, you know, it's now, you know, I've got to keep it, you know, I've got to keep it. If I, uh, you know, if something happens to it, like it changes, for example, which of course it will do, then it's my fault or my responsibility, you know, that. That kind of dynamic, but the really, um, and that's where the suffering comes. The really interesting thing is to notice that contraction around, you know, relaxed, pleasant, breath, body, notice it, it's mine, yeah, it's mine, it's about me, I need to keep it. And so if we break down the flow a little bit, you know, we look again, it's the event is the calmness of the mind, relative calmness of the mind. And we sense that as pleasant. Yeah, we sense that as pleasant. And then there's the reaction of wanting to keep it. Wanting to keep it. And it would be the opposite if it was an unpleasant thing, you know, pain somewhere in the body, sensed as unpleasant, and then the pushing away but it's the same process. It's two sides of the same coin. And so the wanting to keep it arises together with the sense of self. Really, really, really important bit. Yeah, the sense of self, the identity, rises around this. You know, this is mine. And I need to make sure it stays. Yeah, so that whole process, very human, very, very human and really interesting. And it really points to how complex and actually how wonderful we are as human beings. You know, really complex. Really simple. Yeah, very simplified process, but really complex. All this contraction and building up of the self, which then affects that process. Yeah? If we're contracted, what happens to the relaxed experience? contracted around keep trying to keep it what happens to the calm but typically we don't see that relationship what we do is we panic even more it's going it's going it's going even more tension more holding 
So that's a lot of what happens to us in us as humans. And it's so kind of part sad but very beautiful to see the complexity of the sense of self. You know, that sense of self that is there in the background, in the foreground, in the centre of our lives. And that itself, that sense of self, which, you know, sometimes in um, kind of modern world, it's like we have this, we blame the sense of self for, you know, the ego, the self, you know, that's at the root of all troubles. When we look at it the way we just did now, we see that the sense of self itself is a conditioned thing, yeah? It arises subject to, to conditions and to certain habits in mind. So it too, it's not this thing that's our enemy or our ally, good or bad, conditioned, a conditioned phenomena. It's a relative event. It arises in relationship to other things, a relative event. Now, I'm saying a lot of things which are, um, I'm hoping, resonate resonate with your experience at the same time I want to say that these are things that you know it it's we we can see them really clearly and resonate and feel the impact they're not easy to change yeah they're not easy to change it's really important to understand and then to keep applying it into our experience slowly yeah slowly and with patience so the sense of self a relative event it arises in relationship to events, to life, to phenomena, to mind states, to how um, full we are, you know, how tired we are. There's many, many, many conditions. And another way of saying it is that the sense of self also, that sense of self itself, is also fabricated. Also fabricated. And dependent on our way of looking. Yeah, it takes us back to that guy standing in front of the mirror. <laughs> saying, I love you, man. Even if that's not what he said. Well, for, for us, that's what he said. Yeah, I love you, man. Yeah, it's also fabricated. It's also changeable and impacted. And so this is really, really, um, really the, the, the juice of Dharma teachings. You know, Dharma teachings are really interested in this because Dharma teachings are about pointing us towards freedom, pointing, pointing us towards reducing suffering in our lives for ourselves and for others, you know, how we cause suffering to others as well, both ways. So this is really crucial because these that solidity that we give to things, that solidity that we give to ourselves, results in suffering. It's what a big part of what causes suffering um, for ourselves and in the world. And so it's important to get to know, to understand what ways of looking at life when they're in operation, what ways of looking cause suffering or increase suffering. And equally, it's important to see, to understand, to recognize 
What ways of looking decrease suffering and increase happiness and freedom? So both, yeah, we're looking at the habits and we're looking at other ways. I'm using this phrase, ways of looking, a lot. Do you guys feel like, do you get a sense of what that means or is it confusing? Please tell me if it's confusing. Okay, so again, that it's a phrase from, from Robert Bayer, very beloved teacher. Um, and it literally means, you know, it's like, like that image of putting on the glasses that I used. It's, it's the way we're looking, what we're looking through. But it's not, you know, glasses of one simple object. Ways of looking are very, you know, very diverse. Made up of lots of different elements at the same time. So there are ways of looking that are rooted in wisdom. Yeah, that are rooted in wisdom, that are rooted in compassion. For example, the cultivation of, of metta, the practice that we're doing in the evenings, that actually cultivates a way of looking, an attitude towards life, towards ourselves, towards others, an attitude of friendliness. That, that's a way of looking that we can apply. And ways of looking that bring freedom are rooted in wisdom, are rooted in an understanding of the non-separate nature of things and of ourselves, of that impactness. One teacher um, I really like um, teaches in the she's American teaches in the in the Tibetan tradition. She um, she always gives an example. This understanding that she brings two sticks with her to the to the meditation hall, or three sticks, I think three, and then she makes a little kind of tripod out of them, and she says that's life. That's everything in life. Everything leans. That's now you know everything is leaning on something else. And being lent on, you know. So if we take, you know, I haven't got three sticks, you know. But, you know, everything, everything, including us, including every aspect of our experience, and try this out, look for yourselves, is leaning and being lent on. And nothing exists, nothing can stand up by itself. Nothing can stand up by itself. A very, yeah. I have to stop myself. I'm running out of time, and I haven't even reached halfway through the talk. This always happens to me when I talk about this. You know, it just—it's just everything. Everything is leaning and being lent on. And how does that shift? If we really kind of remind ourselves, how does that shift how we experience things? You're getting some sticks. Great. You do you do the leaning. I'll carry on talking. Huh? I'm not. I'll probably make them all fall apart. You do the leaning. I'll carry on talking. <laughs> Maybe uh, Elizabeth Matisse has got special sticks. Yeah, it's nice Elizabeth Matisse Namgyal. I can write it down. <laughs> Difficult to remember. <laughs> I don't know what the trick is. 
I've only heard, I've never seen her do it. So, so nothing is separate, everything leans, everything leans, and nothing is unchanging, everything is fluid. Because of that, because everything is, is leaning, not just with three things, yeah, it's much more complex than that. So everything is affected and affecting, They're constantly changing because things are changing. So as we deepen this kind of this way of looking, you know, we become um, less hooked, less hooked by our habits and by our reactivity. The more we understand this, less hooked by the habits and reactivity because we believe them a little bit less or a lot less. Yeah, believe them a little bit less or a lot less. And we're more able to let go. Yeah, we're more able to let go of that which we know is not wholesome, not helpful, not leading to freedom. And we're more able to give our energy to cultivating, to supporting that which we know is wholesome, is skillful, is leading to happiness. And so I want to take some time to actually speak about how do we apply this, you know, right here and now to our meditation practice. Yeah, because, you know, we can get a sense of the big picture, but how do we actually apply it here to our practice? And so I'm going to use something very, very applicable. It's applicable to all of us here. I don't even need to check. And um, in the teachings, they're called the five hindrances. So if you don't know this yet, the Buddha liked lists, uh, mostly because at his time uh, people didn't write things down. So it was an oral tradition and lists make things much easier to remember. And it's, it's still very nice for us because you know, we can still remember the lists, even with writing down. So the five hindrances. So yeah, this word hindrances, obstacles, things that get in the way. And these five hindrances are something that arise in meditation. And they arise in meditation practice for everyone. Right quite near the end of the path is when they disappear. So they're not a sign whether you're advanced or not advanced. Sorry to tell you that. (laughs) Can't measure by that. And they hinder mindfulness. They hinder um, calm. Get in the way. And they hinder the further cultivation of wisdom and clear seeing. And so I'll tell you what the five are. And I'm sure you'll recognize from your direct experience if not all of them, at least three. Okay, at least three. So um, the first one is um, sensual desire. So desire for sense objects. And in Buddha Dharma, um, there's six senses. The sixth one is the mind. Yeah, this is really important. 
Yeah. So the sixth one is the mind. So you know when you when you have um, thoughts that you can't, you know, the mind just kind of latches onto and thirsts. That's sensual desire, as well. Yeah. According to this definition. So desire and desire's best friend, aversion. Yeah. Two sides of the same coin. So again, uh, our friend Rob sometimes call them, calls them the push-pull. <laughs> Pushing away the pulling. Yeah. Desire and aversion. So that's two. Then there's another pair. Restlessness and worry. <laughs> slash anxiety. So that kind of very intense movement in the mind or in the body being the mind and in the body and it's um, it's friend it's partner they come in pairs it's wonderful sloth and turpa <laughs> otherwise known in modern English as um, dullness and kind of really low energy really low energy. So the sloth is usually more uh, relates to the body and turpa is, is the, the dullness in the mind, that kind of low energy in the mind. Sometimes also that state of fantasy, you know, we're kind of, we're not really aware, we're not really there, but there's some kind of story going on. And the fifth hindrance is, uh, is uh, a standalone, it's doubt. That can be doubt um, in ourselves a lot of the time. Sometimes it can become doubt in the teaching, doubt in the form, doubt in the teachers, you know. It can be, it's just, it's doubt. It's that sense of questioning, but not, not the healthy doubt, not the healthy questioning of investigation, but that kind of questioning that kind of sucks all the energy out of our being and our practice. So that's kind of one way of discerning with doubt, whether it's a, what we'd call a hindrance or it's actually a healthy doubt, questioning and investigation. So really important with the hindrances to, to know actually what they are. You know, sometimes I say, I say the list in the hall when I'm teaching and I can kind of feel a sense of relief in people and they're kind of, oh yeah, so it's not just me, actually. You know, these are actually known yeah, so really important to know them and to remember that they're habits of pat- and patterns of the human mind. So they don't, they're not personal. It's not like there's something wrong with me or something wrong with my practice or how I'm doing it. They're not personal. But it can be um, really helpful to relate to them, I found, to relate to the hindrances from this way of looking, like from this way of looking strategy. I see a hindrance as a way of looking, yeah? So restlessness is arising, that affects, that colors my perception, yeah? And the Buddha used um, this really, really beautiful simile to describe the, the hindrances, um, and how they obscure our perception, how they affect our perception. Um, and he used this image of the mind as a clear pool of water. Um, that it's so clear, it's like a mirror. You know, if you, you can see things reflected in it, trees, your own face, whatever. So clear, that's, 
That's the natural state of the mind. And then what happens with the different hindrances? So when, the, when sense desire arises or is present in the mind, it's as if the, someone dropped a colored dye into the water, into this pool. And so the whole pool becomes colored. And so that's how desire affects our mind. You know, it colors our perception, it colors the mind. You see everything through that lens of desire for something. When aversion arises or is present, it's like the water in the pool is boiling. <laughs> Such a great image. Yeah, it's like the water is boiling, you know, the steam, the bubbles, you know, we can't see anything clearly because the aversion just takes over. And the heat, yeah, the heat, the aversion. When sloth and turpa, when this dullness and low energy are there, it's as if um, the pool is completely overgrown with algae. Yeah, so this real sense of you know, suffocation and stagnation. Yeah, it's real. A real weighing down of the mind. You know, that affects again our ability to see clearly. You know, we all know this um, experience when we're very tired and how quickly we're, tr- we're triggered. Yeah? It's that kind of spectrum. Restlessness and worry are like a pool of water where the wind is blowing and constantly stirring it up. You know, so there's these waves and this movement on the water. And again, we can't see clear, clearly because of that movement. Because of that movement. And doubt is like very muddy water. Very muddy water. And again, we can't, we can't see clearly because it's muddy, because the the, the the doubt kind of makes everything murky. Everything is obscured. And so I think, I, I love this simile because I think it, you know, without a lot of words, it really illustrates, really gives us a feeling, a taste of how each one of the hindrances affects our perception, affects our mind, and how we see things. And it can be really helpful when we recognize a hindrance. You know, when we recognize, ah, it's restlessness now. Yeah, or it's desire, or it's aversion. We recognize that to actually, ah, so it's affecting perception. And then be interested in how that happens. And I want to say a little bit more about that. I've still got time. My watch says I've got time. You might be feeling differently, but you're in silence, so you can't tell me that. So, so how do we work with that? So the first part is, is like I was already saying, to recognize, yeah? We, we recognize what is present. You know, it was beautiful today in the group. People were actually speaking about these. Doubt was there and boredom, which is a form of aversion, and or restlessness, was there. Tiredness was there. You know, all of these, they were there. And so the first thing um, that can help us is to recognize. To recognize. 
recognize. I just saw. You know, the mind is running. Mind is running. What's what's underlying that? What's underlying that? Sometimes it's a desire. Sometimes it's aversion. Sometimes it's doubt. Sometimes it's restlessness. But we can start to to recognize and to identify the flavors. So recognizing that a hindrance is here. And sometimes, the bad news is, sometimes a few of them come together. It's called a hindrance attack. You know. And sometimes it's enough to just name hindrances. You know, just say, ah, hindrances are there. And just recognize. And in that recognition, it creates some breathing space. Yeah. Just that recognition. This is, this is when, why these teachers are so, teachings are so amazing. Because yeah. just that recognition creates some space. Right there in the moment. You know, we don't need to be enlightened. But just in the moment of recognizing hindrances, you know, or restlessness, or whatever it is, doubt, we have some space. We're not completely immersed and submerged in the experience. We have some space. We know there's a pool there, even if it's covered in algae. In algae, you know, we already know that. And that recognition and that space, that's really the power that awareness has. You know, we know we know, we recognize, we know there's a hindrance here. And that connects us to the space around, to the knowing, to awareness. Yeah? So that's a first step, the recognition. It's a huge step. It's a huge step. Sometimes that's all that is possible for us. If the hindrances are, you know, very intense. Yeah, and we just keep recognizing. We just keep recognizing. Sometimes we can take a second step. Yeah? So there's the recognition, and there's a little bit of space with the recognition, or a lot of space with the recognition. And then we say, okay, can I allow this to be here? Can I allow? You know, so again, our habit is to push the hindrances away. You know, they're unpleasant, they're keeping me away from my meditation, which is what I want to be doing. Yeah? So the habit is to push them away. Can we, instead of that, can we allow? Which means to, um, to relax the resistance, to relax that pushing away, to relax the resistance in some way, which increases the space even more. Yeah. So we have the recognition, created some space, and then we allow something to be there. So we're relaxing the tension, relaxing the resistance, and we get more space. And often one thing that we might see is that through relaxing the resistance, yeah, relaxing that struggle, the hindrance itself becomes a little less strong. A little less strong. How does that happen? One way it happens, one way we can see it happening, is that sometimes the resistance, the pushing away, is actually um, feeding, giving energy to, to that. <coughs> Another way of seeing this is, you know, sometimes there's, 
with the hindrances, there's very little space. Yeah, I've used this. There's very little space. When we allow, recognize, we're creating more space. That momentum of the hindrance has more space around it. It's less constrained. And therefore, it's not kind of hitting up against the limitations. It's got more space to move. So it actually kind of decreases the power of it to some degree. And we can relax the resistance in, in a few ways that we've already been doing here. One is um, actually physically relaxing areas of tension. Yeah, so we've recognized the hindrance, we've allowed it, and we check in with the body. And there may be tension somewhere in the body. If we relax that tension directly, it can have an effect. And try these things, yeah, try these things and see for yourself how they work. Also, other things that we've done can really help relax that resistance. Um, things like stretching the awareness into the whole body, wide body awareness. Again, we're creating space, creating space. It's not so limited and so constrict, constricted. Um, or playing with the breath energy. You know, if I bring the energy of the breath into areas that feel tense or feel contracted, what happens? Playing with that. And so this whole process of the allowance actually increases our familiarity with the hindrance. So it's not just working with it in the moment when it's arising, but it actually increases our familiarity with it over the long term. So we become more familiar. Ah, you know, sometimes we begin to even recognize it in the body first. There's some tension. Is there aversion here? Begin kind of all we increase familiarity, so it increases the contact and the possibility to to change or to work with. And so this brings us to the third way of um, opening to or working with the hindrances, which is investigation. Investigation which one way of saying that is we turn the problem into the solution, yeah? So we take that which it feels problematic, you know, restlessness or tiredness, feels problematic, and by bringing our attention to it, we're changing the relationship. So from problem, it actually becomes something useful becomes the object of the practice, the object of the mindfulness or of the interest. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm sure you've had moments of that already. You know, sometimes with physical pain we can see it. Yeah. So we we shift the relationship, we change the relationship by bringing interest and investigation. And Really checking in, again, the continuation of the allowance. So um, checking in, how does it feel in the body? Let's say the mind is really restless. How does it actually feel in the body, that restlessness of the mind? Checking through. How does it feel in the feeling life? You know, is there any emotional tone to it? What kind of... um, 
mood or mind state or thought pattern comes with it. Again, not, not needing to go into stories, but just investigating, becoming more familiar with it. And we can ask, what feeds it? What strengthens it? Now, what feeds it? What strengthens it? Or what is underlying? You know, what are the underlying conditions that feed this? And then what makes it more weak? What weakens it? What takes away the power? And there's a great example, which again, we've been saying this, um, but you know, I, I do this a lot. If I'm feeling dull or tired, checking in with the body posture. And usually my body's a lot or at least a little slumped. And then what happens if I open up again? So just playing with that a little bit. You know, we can investigate in this way. We can find these relationships. We can find these relationships. Is it constant? You know, it usually feels like it is. But what happens if I look? You know, is this restlessness there all the time? Or is this aversion or this doubt? Are they there? Are they constant? Or are they coming and going? Even if it's a very high frequency. You know, what happens when I look at that? And how does it affect perception? It's going to be really interesting. <laughs> you know, invite you to try it, particularly if you realize, which you may do, that you are prone to, to one or two hindrances more than others. And so then we can see, we can watch. How does it affect perception? You know, classic example. There's some negativity in the mind. In the sitting, it feels really long. How does it affect the perception of time? You know, we all know that experience of sitting there waiting for that goddamn bell to ring. You know? And clearly, you know, whoever's in charge of ringing the bell has fallen asleep and is just really good at staying upright. Because it's, you know, got to be got to be the time but how does the aversive mind state that is there how is that affecting the perception of time yeah so just starting to look at that it's really interesting really really interesting and this brings us to the fourth part of this kind of um, group of ways of a process of working with hindrances, which is not or non-identification. Non-identification is the big one. Can we see the hindrance as something that in itself is passing, is not permanent, is subject to conditions, influenced by many, many factors? Can I see that? You know, it's some moments it's possible to do that and to you know that's when we bring the the investigation in as we experiment you know how does it change when i bring interest to it if it does what happens when i smile <laughs> you know sometimes you can feel really nathan does this to me a lot i'll be really grumpy and you know irritated at him and he'll he'll make jokes and eventually I'll laugh, 
Yeah, so what happens? You know, what happens with that when we laugh? What happens to that sense of like, life is really serious? What happens? So what happens when I don't freak out? This is also one of my, I'm giving you some of my favorite questions. So what happens when I bring interest? What happens to the interest? And what happens when I don't freak out? Yeah, when I don't take it seriously. When I don't, in other words, when I remember it's not permanent, it's not here to stay. It's a changeable phenomena like everything else. What happens when I you know, change the body posture or find a way to bring spaciousness in? Sometimes, you know, you're sitting here and there's you know, absolute mayhem in the poor old mind and you just open your eyes for a moment and take in space. How does that change? How does that change that restlessness or aversion or desire, whatever is happening? How does that change that experience? You're finding ways to remind ourselves that it's not permanent, that it's changeable, and that it's not me. Yeah, It's not me and it's not mine. It's not personal, and it's not who I am. Now we need to find the ways to do that. Because everything that happens on the cushion, everything that happens on the cushion also happens off the cushion. This is a lab. Yeah? It's a lab. And we come here and we sit, and we're silent. And we stay here for, you know, 45 minutes because someone decided that's the length of time. (laughs) But it allows us to see what is going on. What is going on? Because it doesn't just happen here. It's happening all the time. But we're not aware. We haven't got the conditions. That's part of why we do it. So... I said four things, four steps or links or ways of working. And I'll just give you the acronym, you know, the very famous. They make up the word RAIN to make it easier to remember. And I think that has a, can have a particular uh, meaning on our retreat since we had that lovely wet day yesterday. And so the RAIN, the recognize, allow, investigate, non-identify. That's, that's kind of what, what it stands for. And obviously, you know, it's not linear. They all work together, you know. We can recognize and investigate. Yeah. We can non-identify and then allow. You know, just, it's, they're just reminders of the process that can be really helpful. So changing the way of looking, you know, from problem from problem to grist for the mill, to what we what is available to us right now to work with. And whatever is there, you know, whatever arises in our experience is is good enough, yeah, as an object of interest and investigation to understand ourselves, to understand life more fully and more deeply which 
will lead, if it hasn't already, <laughs> to moments and ever-increasing moments of, of freedom, of lightness, of happiness. for ourselves and others. So the clock is telling me I should stop. So let's just have a quiet moment. So may our practice together nourish us in cultivating ways of looking that bring clarity and wisdom. May our practice together nourish us in letting go of ways of looking that bring separation and unhappiness. And may our practice together bring freedom to all beings everywhere, including ourselves. Thank you for your listening, your presence. And we have some time for walking practice or cup of tea practice. And uh, we'll meet back here at half past eight for our meta meditation together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.